You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. something that's wicked in there so that I can get to everlasting, so you can lead me into the way of everlasting. Can you do that before the Lord? Can you sit before the Lord and ask Him to do that? If you do, praise God, be prepared. Be prepared for what He will show you. It's easy to cover up your inside, hide your faults, sins, fears, and weaknesses. It feels like the only way to survive. Today, Pastor Dave will encourage you to ask the Lord to reveal your heart to you. He will reveal to you things that you need to change, and in His graciousness, He will help you through it. It's the only way to live a victorious life. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4, as he continues his message, The End of the Flesh. You are David was a great warrior. This is one of the reasons why Ishbosheth was so troubled. David was a great warrior. And David had a gift of leadership. David knew how to lead. He's a wonderful example for us. Where Ishbosheth, what was he? He was the puppet of Abner. Abner pulled the strings. Abner was the one, remember, way back in the earlier chapters, it was Abner who made Ishbosheth king. He propped them up. He made them. He made them king. It wasn't the Lord put Ishbosheth up there. Even the people knew that Abner's death meant the end of Ishbosheth's reign as king. They even knew it. And it says all Israel was troubled. They knew. They knew there was a big end. In fact, they might have speculation. They might have expected David to ride in with his horsemen and take over. They might expect that there would be an attack of some sort where David, David might have seen a vulnerability and said, you know, we got him, let's go. But that's not David's style. David always waits for God to move. He waits for God to move in this situation. So, Ishbosheth is troubled, and all of Israel is troubled. He lost heart. He doesn't, he's beside himself. What's going to happen now? Let's look at verses 2 to 4. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Banah, Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Rimen, the Berothite, of the children of Benjamin, for Beroth also was part of Benjamin. And it's important they were from Benjamin because that was the tribe that Saul was from. Saul was from Benjamin, so Ishbosheth was a Benjamite. So it's important to know that. Because of the Berlites fled to Githam and had been sojourners until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Meshivasheth. 
So we're introduced to new players in this crazy drama. We're introduced to two new guys. We're introduced to Bana and Rechab. These two men want to take things in their own hands. They think that they're doing the Lord a favor, and they're going to help the Lord out. They're going to help the Lord out. They're going to take things in their own hand, and then they're going to go try to score points with David because of what they've done. He's not a good thing to do that. Not a good thing to do that, as we'll see. We also meet Jonathan's son, Meshebetheth. He was the last male descendant of Saul, and he really had a strong legal claim to the throne. He really, really had a strong legal claim to the throne. But he was only 12 years old, and he was lame. Lame on something that wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. That's why they said he was weak. He was weak because of circumstances beyond his control. His nurse grabbed him, fearing for their lives, and as she was running, she dropped him, he fell, and he became lame from an injury. When we get several chapters down the road, we're going to look at this gentleman again. We're going to see him again, so keep his name in your mind when we get there. Okay? So we're introduced to this new set of characters coming in. This new set of characters. All right? Let's look at 5 through 7. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Beroite, Rechab, and Benah, set out and came at the heat of the day to, his, to the house of Ishbaseth who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. So these guys come in, and they do this dastardly deed. They sneak into the house, claiming that they're hungry, that they're searching for food. They find the king lying in his bed. It's the heat of the day. It's probably noon. He's lying in his bed, and they commit murder. They stab him, and they take his head. Swell guys. Good guys. Why was he lying in his bed at noon? We're not really told why he was lying in his bed at noon. I have a couple suggestions that I'm going to throw out there. It's not scripture, but I have a couple suggestions that I'll throw out there. Number one, you've heard of the siesta. In Europe, people take siestas. They, go to, they, they sleep at various times during the day. And though he might have been taking a siesta, for all I know. For me, my take on it, and it's my take, it's not scripture, because we don't really know. But because he lost heart, I think he was kind of lying in his bed and didn't really know what to do. I think he was just kind of there going, you know what I mean? How you get so upset, you kind of just kind of want to lie around, you want to get out of bed, you know? I think the end's near, and he's kind of like, oh, what am I going to do now? You know what I mean? Now, you guys may have never been like that, but I've been like that before, where you can't even get out of bed. You know, it's like, oh, my, what am I going to do? I, I kind of think that's it. But again, it's not scripture, so we can't make it, uh, we can't be, make it be dogmatic about it. But it's interesting that this gentleman, this Ishbaseth, is killed. Now, keeping with, let's go back to my battle between the flesh and the spirit, okay? Before David could become king, the flesh had to be cut off. Let me think of it that way. Before David could rise to the throne, the flesh of the nation had to be cut off. Off. And Ishbaseth represents the flesh, and David represents the spirit. Naturally, the flesh had to be cut off. And this brings me to something that also struck my heart. 
In Romans 2, in the verse 29, actually I'm going to read 28 and 29, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision in the heart must be cut off. The heart, the circumcision of the heart, the fleshly part of the heart needs to be cut away with. We need to do away with it. Why is God so interested in our heart? Why is God so interested in our heart? He even says David is a man after his own heart. Why is God so interested in our heart? Well, we know from 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart when he sees things. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Interesting. Out of it are the issues of life. Jesus said this about the heart in Matthew 15.19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witnesses, and blasphemies. Gee, I thought they came from my mind. No, they come from your heart. They come from your heart. Jesus is saying that. He says in Luke 6.45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the hearth, the mouth speaks. We read and studied Romans 10. We read and we studied Romans 10 when Paul said, if you want to be saved, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe in your heart. Why believe in your heart and why not your mind? Well, I can always change my mind, can't I? <laughs> I can change my mind about a lot of things. It's pretty difficult to change your heart. So what's in your heart today? Studying God's word, praising him, getting ready to pray. What's in your heart today? Well, Jeremiah can tell you what's in your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God knows it. God knows it heart, because we studied in John that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. In Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. What's the Lord saying here? Is that you're going to be judged for what's going on where? In your heart. In your heart. Even Noah, at the time of the flood, listen to this in Genesis 6, 5. And God saw the wickedness of man, it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were con evil continually. Evil continually. God was looking upon their hearts, just as he's looking into your heart today. Can't hide it. God's looking right into your heart today. He's looking into your heart. And as he looks into your heart, what does he see? What does God see when he looks into your heart? Does he see a heart towards him? Does he see a heart that is wanting him? Does he see a heart open to his spirit to do whatever the spirit wants to do in his heart? Does he see his heart that's seeking him, that wants nothing more than to have him fill that heart to overflowing? What does God see when he looks into your heart? David wanted to know that in Psalm 139. David knew that God knew him. David knew that God knew him better than he knew himself. 
So he says, oh, Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You understand my thoughts are far off. There is not one word in my tongue, but you know it completely. Such knowledge, he says, is too great for me. I can't attain it. No, we can't. So as he recognizes that God knows him so thoroughly, and even better than he knows himself, you know what he prays. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's some wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way of everlasting. What does that mean? It means he sat before God, and he said, God, you know my heart. You know everything. Before I even speak, you know what I'm going to say. Before I even think, you know what I'm going to think. Look at my heart, Lord. Look into my heart. Search it. Show me something that's wicked in there so that I can get to everlasting, so you can lead me into the way of everlasting. Can you do that before the Lord? Can you sit before the Lord and ask him to do that? If you do, praise God, be prepared. Be prepared for what he will show you. I've done it. And it ain't pretty sometimes, folks. It is not pretty. But we need to be prepared for whatever God wants to do in our lives. We need to be prepared for whatever the Spirit would show us and guide us. Remember, the Spirit is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's conforming. Now, we won't be complete until we see him face to face. But he is conforming us. Actually, if you want to get technical, we're complete now. But we won't see that completion until we see him face to face. In chapter 2, verse 16 of Romans, Paul tells us that in the day in which God judges, we will be judged according to the secrets of men. In other words, what's in your heart? God will judge you for what's in your heart. What's in your heart? Well, I haven't committed adultery. No. You ever look at a woman with lust in your eye? Well, uh, bingo. You've committed it in your heart. I haven't committed murder. Do you ever hate your brother in your heart? Bingo. Committed murder. See, God knows your heart. God knows your deepest thoughts. Solomon told his son, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. What he's saying to God today, give me your heart. That's what God's saying to you. Give me your heart. Give me all of you. Don't hold anything back. I want it all. I want all of you. I gave you all my son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. I gave him to you as a free gift. Now give me all your heart. My standard response is, Lord, what a horrible trade. You're getting the short end. You are getting the short end, Lord. He says, I want it. I want all of you. The great prophet Joel in 2.13 says, Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. You know how they used to rend means they used to tear their clothes in disgust. When something would happen to them that they didn't like or when somebody sinned before them, they would tear their clothes and stuff like that. They would become hypocritical and they would tear their clothes. God says, do that to your heart. Do that to your heart. Circumcise your heart. Cut away the flesh of your heart. Get rid of the flesh of your heart. Get away. So in order for David to take the throne, you didn't think I'd get back there, did you? In order for David to take the throne, the flesh had to die. The flesh had to go away. It had to be removed if we're looking at that analogy right here. So let's see what happens to these brothers, you know. Look at what's going on next. We're in, we're in verses 8 to 12. 
and they, meaning the brothers Beerite, they, they, they guy, they took the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord the day, the, the, the king this day of Saul and his descendants. They were bragging. They said, The Lord has avenged you. The Lord didn't send you to kill them. The Lord didn't send you to do that. And he says, Saul, your enemy. David has declared many times that Saul was not his enemy. Saul was not his enemy. But David, in verse 9, answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Man, I love that verse. I love that verse. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Wow. Put that one on your refrigerator doors, people. That is a great verse. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Wow. Well, where did he redeem it? On a cross. I love that verse. Man, I like that verse. I'm going to see it again. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. And David can say that. For years upon years, David was on the run, hiding in caves, people after him left and right, people diming him out every time he turned around. Somebody was diming out where he was hiding. He was constantly looking over his shoulder, constantly looking. Remember, at one time, he was so upset with being chased, he said, Saul's going to get me one of these days. I'm going to die. And then he went down that deep path where he went into the Philistines, remember, and tried to become one of them because he was so distraught. He slipped out of God. He basically backslid into a, a weird situation. You remember when we talked about that? But then David says, oh, yeah, I'm going to read it again. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Oh, man. When someone told me, look, Saul is dead, I'm in verse 10, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him. And had him executed in Ziklag. You remember that. You remember when that happened. That was back in 2 Samuel chapter 1. When the Amalekite came trotting in with Saul's body or whatever. And he said, hey, I killed him. He lied because he didn't kill him. David didn't like that too much. These guys come in with the head of Ishbosheth, And they're thinking they're going to earn brownie points. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get to be. Generals, I mean, they were captains, right? Maybe we'll get a promotion. Yeah, yeah, that's what We'll get promotion for this. Oh, he's going to love this. Wait till he sees us carrying the head in there. David's going to love this. Who knows? We might even get our own houses. We might even be built up. Who knows? This is going to be great. Oh, how easy the flesh can take over and pump us up. How easy our flesh can pump us up. And then they even had the nerve, the blaspheming sense to declare it was from the Lord. They were kind of wrong in their assumption. They were kind of wrong in their assumption because David says, when someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him, had him executed in Ziklag, and the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? <laughs> Oops. I wonder if they did the Jackie Gleason. Humana, 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 humana. I wonder what, what the response was. I wonder if the one holding your head said, here, 
<laughs> he has the head. I didn't do it. I wonder if they tried to dime each other out by saying, it wasn't my idea. I don't know, man. I don't know. I love the fact that David calls Ishbaseth righteous. I love that. He called Ishbaseth righteous. Ishbaseth was killed for being one thing and one thing only. He was killed because he was king. No other reason. He was killed because he was king. David knew that. They thought they would be, David would be pleased. They underestimated David's loyalty to not only the house of Saul, but more important, God. They underestimated David's loyalty to God. David was loyal in his pledge to honor the house of Saul and the descendants. Remember, he made that back in 1 Samuel 24. He was going to honor the house of Saul and all of his descendants. He was going to honor them. This crime supersedes that of the death of Abner. In fact, Joab just went down a notch where these guys moved to the top of the list of heinous crimes. These guys, you know, because the only thing this man was guilty of was being Saul's son. And then they said the Lord told him to do it. Whew. I never heard people say the devil, devil made him do it, but the Lord made him do it? Well, we hear that today. We hear that today. Sadly, we hear these horror stories about people committing heinous acts and said that the Lord told them to do that. Well, I'm here to tell you that the Lord will never tell you to do anything against Scripture. The Lord will not tell you to do anything against Scripture. He won't tell you that. And if you're hearing that, it's not the Lord. It is not the Lord. David's response, quick and just. He made it clear that he never murdered anybody just to advance his purposes. The Lord had protected him all this time, and he was not guilty of Saul's death, nor was he guilty of Abner's death. He quenched those rumors very quickly, and he killed them in an act of humiliation by cutting off their hands and their feet. This was total act of humiliation, doing this to them. It was his justice, and it was evidence of justice. And then he takes the son of Saul, Ishbaseth's head, and he buries it in the sepulcher where Abner is buried in Hebron. He takes it there. So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbaseth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Wow. So the flesh has been cut away, so to speak. The flesh is gone. And now that Ishbaseth is gone, the 11 tribes of Israel don't have a king. They're kingless. They're upset. They're worried. They're afraid because there's no one to lead them. There's no one to go before them in battle should a rogue nation attack them. And they're afraid. You are The book of 2 Samuel is a continuation of David's journey to the throne promised him years before. It follows his life and relationship with God, with his family, and with the people entrusted to his leadership. David has much to teach you, and we encourage you to continue studying this Old Testament book. If you missed any part of today's teaching on Assure Hope, or if you'd like to listen to additional teachings from Pastor Dave, visit AssureHopeRadio.com today. 
Maybe today, as you were listening, you found you have some questions about faith and maybe even about salvation. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions and start you on a journey that will change your life for the better. Give us a call. Our number is 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. And while you're on our website, visit the page How to Be Saved to read all about the plan of salvation God set up long ago. We'd love to meet you, too. If you're in the area, join us this weekend at Calvary Chapel, Cape May. You can find directions and more information at assurehoperadio.com. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook, too. Just follow the link on our page to follow us. We're coming to an end of our time with you today. We're so glad you took the time to study God's Word today with Pastor Dave, and we hope you'll join us next time as we explore deeper into the book of 2 Samuel, right here on Assure Hope.